and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Samuel Nerding, Bicom's Research Associate, and today I'm delighted to be speaking to one of Israel's most notable experts on Iran, its proxies in the region, and its nuclear ambitions. Reserve Major Danny Sitrinovich has 20 years of experience in intelligence and analysis and was in charge of the Iran file at the IGF's Military Intelligence Unit, as well as serving as the IGF's Military Intelligence Representative at the Israeli Embassy in Washington. Danny, it's a pleasure to have you on the Bicom podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. So let's begin with the return of nuclear talks in Vienna earlier this week. Perhaps you can start off by explaining to our listeners kind of what are the main stumbling blocks between the US and Iran in returning to the JCPOA nuclear deal? Well, uh, I think that um, when you're looking at the Iranian side, I think that uh, the question is not whether they want to return back or not returning back to the agreement. I think they want to return back, but depends, of course, on the condition, meaning that the Iranians actually demand three main things. The first one is called lifting of all sanctions imposed on them, not only the nuclear one. The second thing is getting assurances from the US administration that uh, in the future they won't leave the agreement. And the third issue related to the fact that Iran demands that the discussion will take place only and only on nuclear issues. They are against including issues like the missile restrictions of Iran, or its malign activity in the Middle East. So in, in, in general terms, they're coming very, uh, very conservative in a way that they really want to, uh, for them, those are really the red lines uh, when it comes to the negotiation table. From the US side, I think the main problem that the US has right now is the understanding of Iran that really the US has only one option, meaning returning back to the negotiation table. When the US is talking about what we call plan B, actually plan B meaning military threat, that Iran assumes that the US really doesn't want to uh, use this tool because at the end of the day, the US wants to pivot to Asia. They don't want to return back to the Middle East. And the second thing is the restrictions or the sanctions. Now, in order to reinstitute the sanctioned regime, uh, the US really needs Russia and China. And as Iran said, they believe that the, the Russia, Russia and China is still on their side. So in this regard, I think that uh, I don't see any way that the Iranians will flexible, will show flexibility in uh, their approach. And the US, I think there are limitations for the compromises that they can show in the negotiation. So I'm not saying that there won't be a return to the agreement, but I think that the gap is still there. And in order to have some sort of a possible or chance to return back to the agreement, I believe that the US will have to show more compromises. So in this regard, uh, I can't say I'm optimistic or pessimistic. I think that it, it will take more than one uh, leg of discussions. We'll, uh, we'll see more rounds in Vienna. And it depends to see how things will develop in the near future. And then we'll, I think we can understand the possibility of the both sides returning to the agreement. This week, Israeli Foreign Minister Yael Lapid visited both the UK and France. Um, they're both kind of JCPOA participants. 
Why do you think he decided to visit those countries now? And what sort of message do you think he likely gave to, to, uh, to those countries? Well, interesting question. I think that um, Israel is generally worried from the developments. Uh, I think that uh, they're even more worried from uh, the lack of ability to influence the discussions given the unrealistic approach that uh, Israel is really endorsed through the years. And I think that um, in the end of the day, what I believe that happened in those discussion is that really what Lapid tried to do is try to convince um, his counterparts in those uh, countries uh, to not uh, leave the sanctions, of course, explaining that pressure on Iran is crucial for, uh, to persuade Iran to show more flexibility in the negotiation table, the importance of threatening uh, Iran or using force to deter Iran uh, in that regard. And I think that in the end of the day, Israel is worried. That's why we see more activity on the, on the political sphere. But I think that we can say that its ability to really influence the negotiation is limited. We have to remember that but the international community partially blame Israel for pushing um, uh, 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 the U.S. outside of the negotiation table, uh, and for, sorry, from the JCPOA. So I think that those visits are important, but I don't see them changing much in the uh, European approach toward the JCPOA in general. Given kind of what you know about obviously the US, did you think Israel sees the European partners as the most likely to take a hard view against uh, Iran in these talks? I think that uh, if Israel think that, and maybe they, maybe they do, uh, mm. I don't think it's the right thing to count on. Mm. I think that in general, when you look at the P5 plus one, and, and of course the E3, I think there is, truly an understanding that the best way to solve the, the Iranian nuclear file is pushing Iran back to the JCPOA. I don't see any willingness within the superpowers to return back to the sanctions regime and return back to the issue of uh, threatening Iran by force. They are not there anymore. Mm -hmm. So and maybe I think that it's important to them to show, yeah, we are against uh, Iran developing nuclear weapons and so forth. But bottom line of things, there is a gap between Israel's approach and the European approach towards Iran. Israel mm. do not accept Iran's right to enrich. While the Europeans, the US, of course, and the Russia and China, but it goes without saying, acknowledge the right of Iran to enrich mm. in the JCPOA. But talking kind of on those kind of like those different kind of opinions and um, I suppose kind of parameters of what Iran isn't, isn't allowed to do. Um, the, the US and the UK here have promised Israel that Iran will never get a nuclear weapon, but Israel doesn't want Iran to reach a nuclear threshold state or status. Can you kind of explain the difference of the two? And also perhaps can you explain the timeline of where kind of Iran is currently at in the three stages of its nuclear weapons program, which we assume, well, we assume is the nuclear enrichment, weaponization of warheads and the ballistic missile program? Yeah, sure. Uh, again, very, impo very important question. Uh, first, just a simple explanation. Uh, in order to acquire a nuclear device, you need actually to have a nuclear fissile material. In Iran's case, it's uranium, uh, meaning 90% enriched uranium, or what we call weapons-grade uranium. 
And the other thing that you need is a weapon actually that knows how to take the fissile material and shape it into what we call a nuclear device or put it onto a missile in a way, what we call nuclear warhead. Now, today, Iran has no problem reaching the fissile material needed. They're already in reach to a 60% and um, they have no challenge or technological challenge to enrich to 90%. But I think the bottleneck that they have is the weapons now, Iran had a weapons group between 98, 99, and 2003, what we call the Ahmad Project, headed by Muhsin Fakhri Zadeh that was killed a year ago. Uh, actually, I think a year ago, uh, just a, uh, exactly a year ago. And this, uh, this group stopped or freezed its activity in 2003 because Iran was really afraid that the US is going to invade Iran uh, if you remember 2003, the US were very active in the region, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and really Iran thought they were next. So they decided to freeze the activity. So while Iran is very close to the enrichment part, in, in the enrichment part, it's still far away from the weapons issue. So I think that the best estimate is roughly between, roughly around two years that it will needed for Iran to build a nuclear device, even if it will have a fissile material, and only if you decide to do so. There are no indication that they decided to do so right now. But this uh, is the place really to highlight, like I mentioned in the beginning, the gap between Israel and the international community. Because I think at the end of the day, what Israel is trying to say is that in order to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons, you need to dismantle Iranian rich uh, capabilities. Mm. But the world, of course, is focusing on how to contain Iran, to leave that in its, uh, what we call the civilian sphere of its nuclear program and not bypassing, not crossing a threshold to the military one. So again, for a, a long answer for a very important question, uh, I believe that the, assessment, the right assessment right now is roughly one and a year and a half, two years, if Iran would decided to acquire nuclear capabilities, and for now, they're really pushing the enrichment route. Interesting, interesting. Talking about kind of what Israel is saying, last week, Prime Minister Bennett gave a speech in which he said that Israel's previous policy of, and I quote, hunting down the terrorists of the day that is operated by the IRGC Quds Force is just no longer, longer logical. We have to get to the dispatchers. What do you think this kind of this new policy of striking Iran directly could look like over the coming months if Iran does continue its nuclear program whilst talks kind of on go and don't kind of come to any conclusion? Yeah, well, actually, I was in the audience when uh, Prime Minister Bennett told uh, this uh, or gave this speech and mentioned that. Mm. Uh, I think that um, I have to say, I think it's a very unrealistic approach. Okay. First, you have to remember, and actually also connect to the, the uh, the decision taken by Australia uh, to outlaw uh, Hezbollah and uh, critical wing is the fact that Israel's main problem in the Middle East is not Iran per se, meaning that the biggest rival in the region is Hezbollah. Now, if Israel thinks, why it's important, because if Israel thinks that it can strike Iran without Lebanese Hezbollah retaliating, it has a situation very, it, it, the situation is very, or sorry, uh, it understands the situation very, very wrong. Right. Meaning that beside the operational obstacles in waging a war in what we call the third circle, meaning 
they're uh, waging a direct war between Israel and Iran that is 2,000 away from Israel border, the real threat on Israel is coming from Hezbollah and not for Iran. Beside that, Israel, by doing so, uh, will find itself in a, what we call a regional war with Iranian proxies like Houthis and Shiite militias. Understand where it's coming from, understand the need to focus on Iran. But Israel cannot wage a war against Iran, even if it, it have the possibility to do so technically, at the end of the day, you'll find yourself against the, what we call the Iranian threat network, the ITM, and you'll be challenged. So, so it's easy to declare it, but it's much harder to implement it. How do you assess kind of Israel's readiness to military to a military strike on the Iranian nuclear program? Um, obviously, the Israelis want to talk about a plan B and have a credible credible military strike. There has been, my reading, kind of two schools of thoughts in Israel. Um, one of these says that the IDF have never stopped planning military strikes in Iran, but the other one, which kind of Prime Minister Bennett has said, is that there was a kind of a halt to serious planning and preparation post-2015, but now with the new budget, they are back to kind of serious planning. Which one do you think is right, and how likely do you think an Israeli attack on Iran's nuclear program will be in the future? <laughs> The one million dollar question. Uh, <laughs> yes. Question. I think that it's really, it's really uh, so such an important question when discussing about the relation between Israel and Iran. I will tell you my view on uh, on this important question. I think that to understand it, let's talk a little bit about the Iranian nuclear program. I think this, in order to understand the ability to Israel to strike, let's talk a little bit about the program itself. So the program, the Iranian nuclear program. It's really a program that is really highly fortified and protected, uh, centered or concentrated in two enrichment sites, one in Natanz and the other in Fodo. Both of them, like I mentioned, highly fortified, highly protected. And the most important thing regarding Iranian nuclear program is the fact that the manpower that operate and develop the program is Iranian. And why it's so important? Because let's assume that Israel theoretically has the ability to strike and really to hit hard the program. At the end of the day, the possibility of Iran to recover is extremely developed through the years. So I, so I believe that even technically you have the capability, the, the ability of Iran to recover is very rapid. But furthermore, Unlike the Israeli past strikes in Iraq and Syria, you know, Israel attacked Osirak reactor in Iraq in 1981, and Syria in 2007 in the aiming to destroy their uh, nuclear projects. At that time, nobody retaliated against Israel. But if Israel will attack Iran, goes without saying that Israel will find itself in a full stage war. So the question arises, does Israel, Israel is really ready to take the risk of a full war and only delaying the program in, in, or, by or accepting in return a limited delay of the Iranian program? So I think that bottom line of this, I think, and it's important to say that even if you have the, the capability to do so, I think that the replication and the, and the implication of such an attack will be enormous on Israel. You mentioned the money that Israel, the IDF got in order to prepare itself for, for a strike in Iran. 
let's assume, let's assume that Israel will find itself in a full war against Hezbollah and Iranian proxy. It will cost double, triple from the money that the IDF really got for that. So, and I'm not even talking about the loss of life. So in the end of the day, I don't see any viable option to attack in Iran, it, it, because even if we have the ability technically, the implication are such that Israel, I doubted that someone in Israel would take uh, the risk of doing so. I wonder if we can look at regional dynamics a bit, um, particularly with Israel. And over the last month or so, we've seen lots of new military exercises between Israel and its Gulf, Gulf allies, as well as a new defence agreement between Israel and Morocco. How important do you rate these developments and how reliable are they in providing Israel with a military network and a strategic depth in the region that Iran also arguably has? Well, I think those are really very uh, important developments and I'm really supportive of that and I think it's really important, I'm not even talking about the military side but also on the civilian side and the ability of Israel to be accepted in the Middle East, I think it's extremely important. But we mustn't live in illusion, meaning that while the Gulf states in Israel share the same perspective on Iran's malign activity and, and the threat it poses to the region, actually there are different views in how to respond to the threat in Israel and the Gulf states. Mm. Meaning that while Israel believes that the solution to uh, uh, to deal or to deal with Iran, you have to have some sort of a military threat, military capability to uh, deter Iran. The Gulf states do not believe in military, military solutions. Mm. But what they are believe right now is building strong economical relations with Iran and actually trying to diffuse the tension with Tehran. So I think in this regard, it's important. Those relations are important. Defensively working together in the Red Sea, extremely important. But if someone in Israel really think about building a regional NATO against Iran, he got everything wrong. It's mm. not going to happen. Mm. Now, specifically regarding Morocco, a very important visit of uh, Defense Minister Gantz. I think, I think that considering Iran's activity in North Africa, Israel and Morocco really can work together to minimize the uh, Iranian influence in Africa. And I think even more than that, Israel really can help Morocco uh, building its military, military capabilities against the Polisario movement or against Algeria that are both being supported by Iran. So in general terms, I'm really supportive of that, but we have to remember that there are restrictions to, the, to Israel's ability to exploit these agreements and to use that in a military way. That's important to remember. No, absolutely. Um, I know this wasn't under your kind of remit when you're working in the idea, but do you see any potential for expanding the Abraham Accords in, in 2022? Well, uh, you know, when I worked in the IDF, I used to say that I don't have any crystal ball or I left my crystal ball at, uh, at my car or at home. But I think in general terms, you can't rule out that someone or some country like, I don't know, in Africa, for example, yeah. being mentioned Mauritania or other country will join because you know, those countries have their own considerations and maybe they think that Israel is the pathway to the new administration in the US and so forth. But it's important to say that when we discuss, when discussing the expansion of the Abraham Accords, mainly we are talking about King of Saudi Arabia. And here, I'm not that optimistic, I have to say. 
Yeah. I don't see them crossing the threshold in the relations between them and Israel. I don't see that becoming more public in uh, when it de depends on the Saudi leadership, because I think that there are some restraints in this kind of relations. First and foremost, of course, it's the Palestinian issue that it's still there in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, especially under King Salman. I think that they are supportive of the Palestinians and I think that they, it's something that they expect Israel to do to make some moves regarding that. And until Israel won't make this move, uh, those relations will be behind, behind the scenes. But I think it's not only a Palestinian issue. We see now the shaky relations between the Saudis and the US administration. And I, I truly believe that Biden administration really want to, uh, to push Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and towards some sort of a, a publicly uh, public relations with Israel, but I think that the shaky relations between the both countries doesn't help that. And we have also to remember that the Saudis started in recent weeks uh, some sort of discussions with the Iranian leadership, trying to defuse the tension between both countries. And I, I believe that the Saudis know that any step towards Israel in this regard won't help them in rebuilding their relation with Iran. So all in all, there are possibilities in this regard, and I think that we'll see more countries, maybe we'll see more countries, but not uh, Saudi Arabia, not in the current conditions. Fair enough. Let's move back to kind of something which you're also more familiar with when you're working at the IDF, and it's, it's Syria, and it was obviously Iran's entrenchment. From an Israeli perspective, Russia's involvement has offered, to a degree, a, a check on Iranian activities in Syria. Do you think Russia has enough influence and maybe thinks it's in its benefit to drive a wedge between President Assad and Iran? And also, just on that, what do you think a long-term solution to Syria looks like from Jerusalem? Uh, the question is, do you assume that they have or we have as a government long-term solution? I doubt it. Mm. I think that um, Israel is looking at Syria. Let's talk a little bit about Israel and then discussing about the Russia issue. So regarding Israel, I think that Israel is looking at Syria from what we call the Mabam standpoint, or what we call the short of war campaign, a campaign that the IDF is waging in order to push out the Iranian and Hezbollah from Syria. From Syria. So I think that at the end of the day, what Israel really wants in Syria is to limit Iran's and Hezbollah entrenchment. And, put, and I, I understand, I think that, or my assumption is that Israel knows that the, it cannot push Iran and Hezbollah out completely, but it tries really to minimize their activity and mainly prevent them from uh, building strategic capabilities in Syria, like UAVs, like accurate missiles, and so forth. Mm. I think this is actually the main issue, the main target that Israel has now in Syria. Regarding Assad, I think that um, uh, let's stay, the, the Israeli approach is let's stay with the evil that we know. Mm. Meaning that Israel, I think that um, we, Israel understand the fact that, you know, it's a dictator that working with Hezbollah in Iran, but I think that for Israel, it's better to deal with someone that we know, than let's assume that he will be toppled and then we'll get ISIS or other extreme organization near our borders. Uh, actually, the, personally, I think that it's the wrong thing to adopt, the wrong policy to adopt. I think that Bashar Assad is really responsible for transforming Hezbollah from a terrorist organization to a military threat, uh, an army military threat on Israel. I think he's a very dangerous uh, leader. 
But in this regard, I think if I can describe the policy of Israel in Syria is actually some sort of preserving Assad while trying to use the Mabam to push Iran and Hezbollah out of the country with limited success. Looking on the broader issue, um, before we start discussing Russia, let's just mentioning the strong relations between Iran and, uh, and Lebanese, Hezbollah and Assad. There were allies before the war, the civilian war, and, the la and, the, and, and uh, their uh, relations only strengthened after the war, during the war, because Assad truly believed that they saved him. Yeah. So there is no real ability to separate between them. We have to remember that. Now, Russia, I agree that it would prefer to limit the Iranian influence, given the fact that they're both competing on the same economical projects and interests. But I think that we have to remember that Russia also needs the Iranian LH and, and Lebanese Hezbollah as boots on the ground. The war is not over. We have still issues in Idlib, in the eastern part of Syria. So I think that the Russian ability is limited, but also the Russian will is highly limited as well. So I wouldn't rely on Russia on pushing Iran and Hezbollah out of Syria. And actually, I believe that as long as Bashar al-Assad is the president of Syria, they will still be present regardless of what will happen in, in Israel activity or Russian activity in Syria. They will still be there because the connection between them is really unbreakable in so many ways. Perhaps we can finish up where we started. And you mentioned that you weren't optimistic on any solution or any agreement coming out of the talks from Vienna. If there is no kind of end agreement, what options does Israel have vis-a-vis -vis Iran and its nuclear program? Well, I think, like I mentioned in the beginning, all options are very limited and all, all options are bad. Yeah. I think that uh, Israel needs to work with the US administration to think how you can in a way, increase the pressure on Iran. It's not going to be easy when the China and Russia is not supportive of this action. And I say even further than that, I think that even, the, even there will be an agreement or there won't be an agreement, I don't see the US-Israel relations in an optimistic way. Because I think that the US will try to push Iran back to the negotiation table while well, Israel will try to explore the situation to see how it can push Iran uh, uh, out of the JCPOA. So the, in that regard. So I think Israel needs to work with the US administration regardless of that. Yeah. I think that Israel will continue threatening Iran. I think Israel will try to see how we can work with its allies to increase the economical pressure. But in the end of the day, I don't see any silver bullet that Israel has that can change something in the Iranians, uh, how, how the Iranians are behaving. Unfortunately, I think that Israel, um, in, a, in a way, because of, of, the, of adapting such a failed policy, I think at the end of the day, our ability to influence the reality is limited. And we have to remember that going forward. Danny, um... Thank you so much for those really fascinating insights. It was great to speak to you and hopefully we can speak again in the coming months when we, uh, we see what comes out of Vienna. But for now, Danny, thank you so much. Thank you for having me and have a great day.